Hi, listeners. You can now listen to this community podcast production ad-free on Apple Podcasts and access the podcast one week early and get exclusive bonus content. Just hit the subscribe button now on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want access to all of the above, plus video versions of the podcast, head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. I'm Sarah Ferris, true crime podcaster. And I'm Catherine Schweit, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. And you're listening to Stop the Killing. Well, welcome to another episode of Stop the Killing. And it's going to be such an interesting episode because we're so lucky. I feel quite privileged, actually, to be joined by our guest, who is actually one of our listeners, Heather, who is an assistant principal from a school in America, who had sent us in an amazing message on Instagram that if you've looked at our Instagram profile, you'll have seen me blubbing quite a lot over reading out the message because it it was the message that kind of meant that Catherine and I had been heard, I guess, and Heather had gone and put into practice in her school things that she had heard on the podcast. But not only that, we're going to hear the story today of how she swooped in and put all that into action to have an amazing outcome. And I want to read the message that she sent to us. Good. Okay. I'm I'm so glad you're organized. (laughs) Hey, I'm an assistant principal who listens to your podcast. Just wanted to share with you guys what a help it's been. Because of things you've said, I took training on stop the bleed and threat assessments. Today, it all came together when we recognized the signs in a student. Someone saw something and said something, and our threat assessment team came together to get this kid some help. The threat was legitimate, and he had access to weapons. Just seriously, thank you for doing this podcast because it has helped me cope with the burden of school safety and how to prevent. That made Amazing. me cry. I just want you to know. Yeah. I tried to read it when I was giving a speech a couple of weeks ago when I was out West, when I was reading it to an audience of school administrators and I kind of got teary eyed at the end and I had trouble finishing it. Yeah. Just yeah. so you know, Heather. Thank you. I, I love it. I appreciate it. One thing to know about me is that I started off as a teacher back in 2009. And I was in Utah. Uh, I moved to Las Vegas about eight years into my career. And when I was in Las Vegas, I was teaching in North Las Vegas. It was a great experience. Loved it. As I was working there, down there, I promoted through the system, became what we call an instructional coach, and then became an assistant principal. And while we were living down there, we've moved back to Utah since. But while we were down there, we had a, a, a shooting on our campus. And that is what changed a lot of things and perspectives for me. What happened at the school wow. that 
there was a person who lived across the street and they arranged to do a trade of some sort. So there's an app called OfferUp where they, people post their stuff and they make exchanges. So the person who wanted to buy some item showed up to the house across the street from the school and the deal went wrong for some reason. I don't know which person it was, but one pulled a gun on the other. And so the other person ran towards the school and the other person was open firing. And the kids were outside at recess. No, Heather. So we, we actually got into lockdown pretty quickly. And when we got into lockdown, there were some very big hiccups that I noticed that I was critical of that I've been trying to work through. And since that, school safety has played a different role in my mind, and I constantly worry about it. After that incident, then I had a couple of other incidents where I started pulling weapons off of kids. It was right after the pandemic, and so I was pulling knives and guns and things off kids down there. And I remember the first time I pulled a weapon off of a kid, I was like shaking. I was like, what do we do next? Yeah, How old old was the kid? So it was a charter school K-8 that I worked at. So most of the weapons and everything that occurred were in fifth grade through eighth grade. So I want to say this child that I pulled the first weapon off, I think was a seventh grader. Well, 13. Yeah. There was a fifth grader, I think, who was in a gang that we, you know, had weapons on them that we pulled off of. But what was really hard about the whole situation was like, as each situation happened, I got better at pulling weapons off of kids, which is really well, there's a good skill to have that you yeah. probably didn't get in your undergraduate education. Not at all. And what was really hard is that I didn't, just didn't know what to do next. Like once I have the weapon, what do I, I was going to say, what did you do with those weapons? The first weapon or second that you took off of someone was one of those a gun? Yes. Uh, and so fact, had you held a gun before and known what to do? I, I I have held a gun before, but I was just, I just remember shaking and just being like, okay, what's next? And we didn't have a school resource officer. So it's not like we're, the thing to do is just to call the police department and ask them to come over and uh, kind of take it from there. Uh, and I just imagine that conversation, Sarah. Oh, I mean, <laughs> There's like, hey, can you swing by? I've got a 45. I need to hand off to somebody. I'm just absolutely gobsmacked that this is where the conversation's already started, Heather. It's not kind of where I thought it was going to go. How are you, I mean, I need to know, how were you spotting these weapons on children? Was there some kind of like security as they went into the school or was you just actually like, oh my God. Yeah, uh, tip. no cameras, no nothing. Everything came from rumors. The kids would tell rumors. In fact, the very last time before I moved, a couple of days before I, I left the school and moved back, uh, there was a girl who came to me and she shut the door and she said, hey, I want you to know this morning there was a kid walking around. He had a bag and in the bag there was a there was a gun in there. And she said, I'm really scared and I don't want to go back to class. And she also didn't want to be known as the narc or the person who told me what was going on. So, yeah. So I just let her stay there. And I walked up to the room and the backpack was kicked away from the student a little bit. And so I just walked in. I swooped up the backpack and I said, hey, 
whose backpack is this? And he's like, oh, it's mine. I'm like, oh, hey, let's go downstairs and let's talk. So we walk down the stairs and I'm just talking to him. We get into my office. I get another adult there. So there's more than one adult. And I said, hey, you and I both know there's something in this backpack. I want to make it easy on yourself. Tell me what's going on. And he told me, oh, it's in here. This is where it is. And then we called the police. And it was just very seamless that very last time that I had pulled the weapon off of a kid compared to that first time. Wow. And what was the intent behind having the weapon at school in the first place? Did you find that out? He thought he was being bullied, but there wasn't any evidence to support him being bullied. Everything supported him actually being the aggressor, the bully. Most of the time, though, the weapons were there because of gang-related stuff. Some of the research that I've read says that the prevalence of students carrying weapons, many of them, it very much has to do with them feeling like they need to be protected. Even if they are part of a gang, or even if they're not, even if they're bullied, or even if they're the bully, they believe that they're carrying the weapon for protection. So a defensive posture, not necessarily an offensive posture. Mm -hmm. I think that being down in Las Vegas area, most of those weapons and things like that, having them be on students, yes, that's scary. And yes, they shouldn't have weapons. But it's not as scary as when you're in the elementary school and you're worried about somebody coming onto campus with a weapon, such as Uvalde or Sandy Hook. Those are the things that really scare me or that parent that ran um, onto campus with the weapon. When someone comes onto campus open firing, that's what's more nerve-wracking for me as an assistant principal. It's interesting, I mean, just hearing you talk about that. Did you become like this is the norm after a certain amount of time? In Vegas, yes, I did. Yeah, for sure. And that's. Do, do you think that impacts why it's scarier to have somebody from the outside coming in? Because you've already experienced the threat from the inside and you know how to control that a little bit more, maybe? Yeah, when you're on campus, I think that I guess because their intent is different, because they're intending to defend right. themselves, or it's a it's that type of thing. You don't want anyone to shoot off a weapon or anyone to get hurt, right? But when someone brings a weapon onto campus intending to shoot that offensive, that to me is they're going for more people or they're go their intents are bigger. And that's really harder. When it's when you can pinpoint a reason and a why, uh, I think it's easier to cope with. But for instance, Sandy Hook you don't really under, ever understand the why behind it or the Evaldi, like what was the why? And, and so those are harder because it, it's hard to prevent it. When we got back to Utah, I took a position in the school district and immediately some of the things that I noticed, this school district, I I commend them. I really like working for this school district. It is it's very different. The leadership I think is great. And the, one of the focuses is creating a standard of safety. And it was all about putting like cameras and AI and, and software detection in the schools. But it also required the formation of a district safety team and a school safety team. And I signed up for that. So what you're saying is the state passed a law that mm -hmm. all school districts should have to set up these safety teams. Yes. And mm -hmm. so, so that's part of what you were doing for your school district. But mm -hmm. the state was doing it as a whole, which is a great, you know, great idea. Yes. If you fund it, if you have the people for it. And at that time, we had a bunch of parents come to the school board meeting, all really upset, up in arms. What are you going to do to prevent Ovaldi from happening here? And so we had them 
join that safety committee. So we put parents on that committee. Mm, great. Perfect. Perfect. And it's, it's, it's been great. And so anytime I have a parent come to me with worries, I'm like, Hey, come join our school safety team. And as we were meeting the first time, the head, he was saying, we need to really focus on preventative efforts. He was telling us that the money that they allocated for this bill is not going to go very far because it was focused on AI detection and things like that. What's interesting in my district is there's not a standard of safety. And I think that that needs to be identified for each school. Like, what does each school need to have that's a minimum of safetyness? Um, And so that's what I'm working on and thinking about. And in the meantime, he's like, I want to train on uh, threat assessment teams. So that was about the time I started listening to this podcast right after Uvalde. And we trained on this something called, uh, the protocol is called CSTAG. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. I, I do know what CSTAG is. And just for our listeners, if you're if you're living on Mars and you're not aware, Uvalde, Texas, there was an elementary school shooting, 19 children, two teachers killed, 17 people wounded. And it was a, uh, it was a agonizing because it went on for a long time before they were able to get to the shooter. And elementary school shootings like that are incredibly rare any place in the world. And if you count, you know, the ones that are that egregious, uh, Sandy Hook, uh, Uvalde, Texas. So it was understandable that a lot of communities, including states, would pass these laws that say, hey, threat assessment team. And then you mentioned CSTAG. CSTAG is an acronym, a scary acronym, for just a type of threat assessment model, though there are many others. But it's one model that was developed by the University of Virginia that just kind of helps threat assessment teams walk through, okay, we get this information, what do we do with it? Is it an imminent threat? Is it something that we need to study and do some work on? Or is it something that's just kind of passing like a child who says, uh, I'm so mad I could kill you. Okay, maybe the kid doesn't really mean that and doesn't have any means to do it. And so that's not the threat that you want your threat assessment team to focus on. You want your threat assessment team to focus on the things that really might turn into danger and but also things that they can act on and do something about. Mm-hmm. And I will say after going through the training, I wish that it was something I would have had in Las Vegas. It was something I needed. We could have prevented so much with that kind of training, but there just wasn't that kind of training. So Can you tell me more about that? What do you mean you could have prevented more? The training will teach you the signs and what to recognize and how to intervene. I feel like I was responding. The threat assessment team is proactive. It's see something, say something, responding to it versus, you know, oh, someone already has the weapon and then pulling everyone together. And what are you going to do to help that kid get the resources that they need? I I don't want to get to the point where the kid has the weapon on campus. Yeah. True story. Okay. So you're in a new school. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the incident and, and how that all kind of came together and how your training beforehand helped you get to a much better conclusion than you could have been in. Yeah. So we had CSAG training several times this past year. And in an elementary school, you're not going to use it as much as you're probably going to use it in secondary. However, there was a student who was at lunch and she was walking by a group of boys that she heard 
say something about weapons and they were having a discussion and it made her really uncomfortable. So she went home and she told her mother, I heard this. And the next day, mother and daughter show up at the school and come into the principal's office and uh, tell my principal, hey, I overheard this. And we immediately, you know, thank them. Hey, thank you for seeing something, saying something. We really need to reinforce that that's that's a big deal. So the next part is we call the student in after they've left and we start asking him questions. The threat assessment protocol starts off with six questions. And so we, my principal actually started off alone, just kind of asking him the questions. And I was doing my normal lap around the school that I do in the morning. As soon as I get to school and kids are all in classrooms, I go and I make sure every door is locked and I look and make sure everything outside is safe and check the classrooms. As I got back to the office, my principal is white in the face and I can see, oh, something's going on. He said he started the questions and it's a little bit more serious than what he initially thought. He thought the kid was probably joking, but as he started hearing the student's anger and his tone, he was like, oh, no, this is serious. We need to address this. So he calls the school resource officer, and I called both the social worker and the counselor, and we get everybody together. And then one of the things that we did that was unique that you don't have to do part of the protocol, and my principal, knowing this student, decided to have the parent come in. So we all went into the conference room and sat around this table and sat around this child and asked him these very detailed, specific questions and it was alarming to, to watch his mother's face, to watch the officer. Everybody had a different take on how he was responding to these questions. So for me, I was listening and I was just hearing him straight up. What was he saying? And just writing down words. The school social worker said, did, did you notice his demeanor? And then the police officer said, did you notice how interesting his answers were so calculated? Everybody had something different to think about when we will listen to this child tell us his answers to these questions. And then afterwards, we excused the student from the school um, and said, we have to continue our investigation. And during our debrief, that was the most interesting thing to hear everyone's take on things. And that's where all the things I've heard from you guys in this podcast came into play. And I said to them, you know, I'm very worried because he's got access to weapons. Uh, there are weapons in the home. Uh, he's a grievance collector. That was a main, that was a big one that I heard was grievance collector. He, wow. he had the things. And as we were sitting there, I said, you know, as I'm listening to this child, my biggest thing is he is so self-absorbed. I was like, you know, this child needs to get outside of himself. Uh, if I were to put a, a restorative justice plan together and a safety plan together, I would be putting in parts where he needs to go give service and get outside of himself and start thinking about others. But he's not. He's thinking about all the bad things that are happening to him. What did he perceive as bad things happening to him? What kind of he, grievances was he claiming? And he, were they real or perceived? I think they were perceived. He he was saying that his teachers were out to get him, that students were bugging him on the playground, that he also saw this other students be bugged by some other kids on the playground and that bugged him and he wanted to stand up for them. In the discussion, he did name three targets and based off of, I think it's called tariff laws, 
I can't remember the exact word, but we have to notify those parents. There was a threat made against your child. Really? And that was a really hard thing to do. When there is a threat, there's an exception that says the subject's privacy doesn't matter anymore with regard to that item, that the victim's privacy supersedes that and it must be disclosed. All right. Just there you go. Keep back on. Did you know that, Heather, already that you would have to notify the parents of victims or was that something that you found out because of this process? I found out in the threat assessment training. That was something that was new. I had no idea. And again, I could see there were times in Las Vegas where I probably should have let another person know that there was a threat against their child. And I didn't because I didn't know better. I didn't know. And you gave those notifications. So how did that go? Those were hard phone calls. Those were hard phone calls to say, hey, will you come in? And then face-to-face to tell them, hey, this was said. And letting them know that there was a threat against your child. I will say that kids talk. And so I think they knew before they even came into my office. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Have you ever felt that pang of disappointment when you couldn't add a ticket to your collection because it was digital? Or maybe you just lost it? Well, Stubforge.com is here to change that. Imagine this, tickets that not only look but feel like the real deal. Because each ticket from Stubforge is printed on the same quality stock that Ticketmaster uses and printed with genuine ticket printers. It's like holding a piece of the concert, the game or the show right in your hands. But Stubforge isn't just about replacing tickets. With the easy-to-use interactive designer, you can create custom tickets for anything, from concerts to sports games, pregnancy announcements, or parties. Why not make your invitations stand out with tickets that are as unique as your event? And if you're trying to complete a back catalogue of missing tickets, Stubforge offers bulk discounts to make it both easy and affordable. With Stubforge, you can once more give your loved ones physical tickets and see their eyes light up instantly at the best gift you can give. So whether you're looking to reignite your ticket collection, craft the perfect gift or send the coolest invites, head over to stubforge.com. Start creating today and see how Stubforge makes every ticket a story worth saving. Visit stubforge.com and start making tickets today. Obviously there's value in having all of those people in the room listening to that child. Um, and and that was your threat assessment team? Yes, that was the threat assessment team, all the different people in there. 
the value obviously was quite clear to you to have all of those different people in the room. And you said there was lots of different perspectives in there. What was the most shocking perspective that you hadn't thought of that somebody else might have thought of in that room? So for me, I tend to take people at face value. And so he was saying things like, I want to bring a gun to school. When we asked him, what do you intend to do with that weapon? He said, my plan was to bring it to school and just see what happens. And we were asking about the different types of weapons he had access to. And afterwards, his mom chimed in and said, did you notice how much he loved the attention that he got from this? That threw me off a little bit because I I didn't see it as attention seeking. I saw it as, you know, this person's angry. And it made me wonder, you know, back to another shooting case where the parents didn't take it seriously and they ended up being charged themselves. Does this person realize that if her child does this and he got the weapons from her somehow, that there is liability that she has in this? And that's what shocked me is that she's like, he's just doing this for attention. Because he hasn't done anything yet, right? In her Mm. eyes, he's not done anything. Yeah. A lot of times we see parents say, oh, well, my child would never do that. But also we see parents and spouses, boyfriends and girlfriends, they're so used to the conduct that they just say, he says that stuff like that all the time. He's always like that. He doesn't mean it. And they become numb to what may be visible to the rest of us. You've had that meeting. Everybody's kind of swung into action and sat in that room. What happens after that? How how do you manage that threat? So that was the next thing that was really interesting. We all sat there as a team and just started discussing our thoughts and what do we think. And my initial reactions were very debated. Initially, we we wanted to bring the student back, but then we also wondered if if the student coming back to the school would re-trigger things and maybe it might be better for a new environment, a new school. We also considered the possibility of him doing online school, just lots of different options that we have. And I objected to the online school the most, not because the student wouldn't get anything out of it, but because I feel like that would isolate him more. And I kept talking to them. I said, this child needs therapy. This child needs resources help. This child needs to not become isolated. This child needs to give service to other people, become outside himself. He's so angry at the world and he needs to just kind of learn that, you know, those aren't the things to do. And if we send him on to online school, he'll become more isolated. And that's what I just don't want. And the police officer turned to me and said, well, what's actually our responsibility? Like we can't control what the parents are going to do. It was a talk of government overreach is what it came down to. He said, we can't force this child to go into online therapy. We can't force this child to do this and this and this. And I said, well, our number one goal, I guess it does come down to what's going to be safe for the kids. So as we were having the discussion, we called the parents and we involved them in this discussion. And you don't have to do that. Um, yeah. But it really built rapport to Smart. have the parents involved in the discussion to say, hey, these are some of the options that we're discussing. And ultimately, parents have the choice of what they think should happen for their child. So they ended up withdrawing him from the school, which was unfortunate. And they did end up choosing to do online school. And that that 
I will say that bugs me. That bugged me a lot because I I do worry about him. I've gone and we check on him and just kind of make sure that he knows that we don't think he he's a bad kid or anything like that. But we do worry that he's become self-isolated and that things have gotten worse for him. But the officer and the social worker, the next part of the step after that initial meeting is that they go out to the home and they conduct a deeper part of the threat assessment. They've got way more questions and they talk about safety plans in the home and the officer checks in the weapons and sees, are they locked up? They'll offer trigger locks. For them, if you have weapons in the home, they so they offered them free trigger locks. So, Heather, I had a couple of questions. And I mean, it, it is disappointing to see the child pulled from the school. And I think that a lot of times that happens. And there's a lot of public pressure from parents and teachers to say, we just don't want that problem here. And they view the child as a problem instead of as a project. Uh, one of the things that I worry about and I've seen and you've seen is that that's great. You pull this child out when he's 12 or 14, but you know he's going to be 16 and 18 and 20, and he's going to be angry and continue to be angry and angrier because now another wrong has done to him, whether it's real or not. Is this still considered like an ongoing threat or is it like tap out, you're done, kid's not in school anymore? So as a team, we discussed what ongoing care would look like. The police officer said that he would be making sure that he checked in. Uh, the social worker reached out to mom and she regularly checks in. And then he moved to an online school. But if they choose to enroll him at another school and they don't have records that this happened, I can see parents wanting to do that on purpose. Give them a fresh start. Hide the fact that this has happened. And that that's difficult to me. Because I think it is important to let the next level know when we're passing kids on to junior high, to let the junior high know, hey, this happened just to keep an eye out. Because it is so helpful when you have that information. Now, I'm in Virginia where it's mandated. Virginia Tech shooter had a problem in high school and that information was not passed on to Virginia Tech. So absolutely, there's a view here in Virginia that you must pass information along from school district to school district. In your particular state, do you not share information with the schools? Because I agree with you that it's important that the next school not start from go. And it doesn't mean that you have to think that kid is bad. It's the fact to understand the whole package when you get them. Yes. And a lot of people will also view it as we're passing on a problem to them. But, you know, I, I don't see it that way. So in our state, I do know that we talk between the elementary, the junior high and the high school. I am not exactly sure about the college. That is not something I've looked into that I, I should look into. I'm kind of curious about that now. That's your homework. Yeah. yeah there you go. Uh, yeah, I'll kind of research a little bit more into those laws. But if we get a student at our school who we're noticing there's some behavioral outbursts and issues, it is very common for us to call the last teacher or the last school and say, hey, can you tell us about this student? What do you, what can you tell us about them? So for instance, we just received a student at our school and that student is coming from a situation where he was removed from the school for violent reasons. I don't know all of them, but we were ready for it. We are thinking, okay, what do we need to do to put in place for this child to be successful at our school and give them the fresh start? And that's what we want to do for any child. That's, I mean, why public education exists. We're here for all children. So all children can be successful. 
You mentioned that there was access to weapons. Can you expand on that? What kind of weapons, what type of access that really raised your concern? What did he tell us? He told us that all, he listed off all the weapons that he had. You want to stop and do a quick poll? Yeah, I'm, do it. But my God, like this is an elementary age kid as well. 11 years old, I think. So as I'm pulling up the notes, and he's telling us he's serious. He said he had a shotgun and an AR-15. And he said he owns both guns. He had access to the guns. They are normally locked up. And his dad knows the combination and his brother knows the combination. And we asked him, do you know any part of the combination? And he said, I know the first number. And then we were asking him like about the weapons and... This was an interesting thing that I noticed is as he was saying, where are the guns right now? He said they're on the table right now being cleaned. And mom cut him off and said, but they are back in the safe now. And I, I was thinking, actually, they're probably out on the table. Let's be real. Yeah, here. right. Because that's parents protecting and pretending it's never going to happen. And, and my child would never do that. Mm-hmm. And don't pick on my child. And the, and the minute that you're being your child's champion in those situations, you're not helping your child out. Yeah. We asked him, have you gone shooting with your family? Do you know how to use these weapons? And he said, you know, I've I've gone out to the desert and I've been to the range. I, I'm fairly good with them. You're saying he told other yeah. kids and the girl heard it. So mm-hmm. that kind of leakage, what kind of stuff was he telling the other kids? So he was talking specifically about three other kids and he thought that they were bullying other kids and he wanted to protect them. And as I'm looking through my notes again, yeah, he said that they were talking about the shotgun and at first they were joking, but he was kind of actually serious and wanted to bring the gun. And when he brought the gun to school, he was just going to see what happened. Just shoot and see what happens. Just shoot and see what happens. Mm -hmm. Those were his exact words. He also admitted that he had written out a plan in his notebook. Oh my God. Wow. Did you guys find the plan? We we didn't find the plan. He said he wrote it out in his notebook and that he thinks the notebook got thrown away. Oh, perhaps by him or a parent, somebody who didn't want to have the evidence of it. And then he told us that he had been thinking about this for at least two years. So two years. Fifth two grade years. And sixth grade. Yeah. Two years. This is two years, isn't it? Unbelievable. And when you look at it from a threat assessment standpoint, he says he's been thinking about it for years and you go back and you find out that he talked to these kids about it and this young lady overheard it. He's probably talked to other people about it in different ways. He's probably written about it in different ways. Pull this kid's internet search engine and find out what he's been searching. There's probably tremendous amount of information forensically on what he's been searching if you wanted to see. And whether he's continuing to search, right? You have kids that in other situations that would be like this, they would be scared to have a whole team of adults sitting around a table and talking to them. He wasn't. He was very confident in his answers and what he was saying to us, which was also kind of scary to think about. Yeah. That doesn't sit right in that situation, does it? 
Was he a different demeanor than he is in the classroom? Did you find that him sitting in there was a different presentation than you would have expected from that child? Or was it the same? So I had never met the child before. Okay. I'm brand new to the school. It was a few weeks into the school year. So I hadn't met the student, but the principal, he was saying that he's never had any issues or problems with them. The teacher from the prior year, because she's also in part of the threat assessment is to interview the teachers. And so he interviewed last year's teacher because of what he had said about how he hated last year. And he's been planning this for years. And uh, the teacher said, oh, yeah, he was he's defiant. You ask him to do something and he wouldn't do it. And he would argue with me quite often. And we said, you know, you never sent him to the office. And she said, no, nothing he did was ever outrageous, like that warranted an office referral. There wasn't really anything that stood out to the principal that he had done in the past that would have warranted any of this. Clearly, he'd been talking to friends and none of the friends thought enough to provide and share the information, the leakage, because they thought they were snitching. So is that work that can be done in your school and in your district and other schools should think about, he talked to all his friends about it for more than a year and they never reported it to anybody apparently because there was no record of it. And the teachers, kind of like I was saying about parents, sometimes the teachers are like, well, he's just an angry student, but they don't report, hey, this kid is just particularly angry and very defiant. And would that have made a difference if you had information in a file already about him and then you heard this tip? Would the principal's face not have been quite as white when you stepped into his office, when he first spoke to the student. I wonder. I'm also just kind of thinking about, though, if we think about that past year, that was the year right after COVID when we started coming back and all of the teachers were just overwhelmed. And I don't know how familiar you are with what's going on in the public school system right now, but students are acting out a lot more than they used to. They have these TikTok challenges where they're destroying schools. Um, and what? teachers are just done and they are walking out of the building. And so you go on teachers of TikTok and you will see teachers just quitting. They're done. Students are destroying classrooms. Kids are doing these things that are outrageous and other kids are filming and they'll put them on TikTok and you can see the kid having a rage and throwing things, breaking computers and things like that. And so when the kids aren't okay and this is going on, I'm thinking the teachers are just so traumatized themselves as well. And I don't know that they understand what to do or how to handle it right now. In a situation that you had with all of that other noise going on in the background in terms of COVID and stressed teachers, how amazing it was that you managed to scoop that up. Yeah. So thank you for doing that. Absolutely. I agree with you, Sarah. And I have a one uh, hopefulness item, uh, which, you know, we don't always feel like we get, but you did, as Sarah said, such an amazing job. Your school district did, your team did. You mentioned early on that oftentimes a parent would come in to ask about something and you would engage the parents. And, and I love that because it isn't going to get done with teachers and principals and students. It's got to get done with parents too. To me, one of the heroes of this story was the girl's mom. Yeah. She made the the decision to come into school the very next day with her child. And the relationship that the mom had with the girl, the confidence that the girl had to say something to her parents or her mom, I fear that's a rare commodity, but I think every parent could do that. You know, have your conversations with your kids because those other kids he was talking to, the friends, those parents of those kids might have been able to get that information out of the kids too. 
And then they could have been upstanders, and that could have been the previous school year. You never know. So kudos to the parents, but good that parents persist in knowing what their kids are doing and what their kids' friends are doing. I just am grateful for you guys, and I'm like, we'll keep listening to the podcast and learning things. And I will say, when I listened to the episode about Frank DeAngelis, oh, DeAngelis? Frank DeAngelis, Frank. okay. That, Principal of Columbine High School. I loved hearing him speak. Um, I love the conversation and I love the fact that he's all like, get yourself help. And when I listened to that episode, I was thinking back to, you know, there is a little trauma going from the past of the shooting that happened with somebody running onto campus. And he talked about getting help and, you know, I I didn't think I needed it, but I decided to give it a try. And I went and got some therapy because of that episode. And I am working through that, that anxiety that I have about school safety with a therapist, because even though Columbine is way worse, right? Columbine is the worst it could get, but there's some very real anxieties about what to do and how do I prevent. And so that episode really resonated just hearing him and hearing what a great person he is. I'm so proud of you for choosing therapy to get yourself over those challenges. And, you know, Columbine isn't way worse. Every incident is its own. And sometimes mm-hmm. we do calibrate based on the number of bullets or the number dead, but every instance impacts a person. You know, they had a shooting up in Detroit not too long ago, and the subject there pled guilty to terrorism because of a recognition by the courts that even people who aren't impacted by a bullet are impacted. And you're an example of that. So you are a survivor too, and you're learning from it and you're sharing and teaching others. So that's a blessing for all of us. No, thank you. I just, I can't, I can't tell you guys how much I appreciate it. And just hearing the stories I even heard, listened to last week's with Parkland and I loved that episode. So that was a great one too. Thank we've you. Just, we've just done an episode. Today's episode's come out and it's a cheat sheet of the episodes that people should go to. So is there any other ones that would make your cheat sheet list? There were two episodes, I think, or three episodes with Frank DeAngelis. Those were the main mm-hmm. ones that I really resonated with. And then I think there was one about a shooting that happened in New Zealand or Australia. And he, oh, I can't remember the exact title of it, but it's the one where it took a while for law enforcement to get there. Aramoana. Yes, that's the one. And uh, Aramoana, Sarah's practically hometown. Mm. Yes, that was the one that resonated with me. I think that's where I picked up the term of grievance collector. And why that stuck out. Yeah. And then there was an episode that you were talking about. I think it was at CrimeCon where I loved how you were asking people, like, if you saw these things, would you report this? Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to see as well. Those were some of the main things that stood out. If I could make a manual of your podcast based off the things I've learned in that There's just these tidbits that I've listened to in each situation that has come from maybe those episodes. I love it. Brilliant. I love it. Thank Thank you. you. I'm so glad. More than anything, Heather, thank you so much for sharing what you've learned because you're in the fight every day. And I appreciate and really respect somebody who's in the fight every day and willing to step up to the plate. That's really important. 
Yeah. Thank you. One thing that I will say that if any listeners should take away from this is that the big training that we had on all of this threat assessment protocol, the takeaway was don't do this on your own. It's a team for a reason. When you're making the decisions on your own and not including all the people that need to be a part of the team, that's when mistakes happen. We went through and we analyzed prior shootings and incidences that had happened. And in those situations, it might have been one or two individuals making the decisions and things went wrong. You need the whole team, not just one or two people. Thanks for listening. And if you want to know more, Catherine's book, Stop the Killing, is out now. For more details, go to katherineschweit.com. Please consider also supporting our independently made podcast. It's simple to do. Go to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing. And for as little as the price of a latte a month, you can be part of the solution to stop the killing. Patreon rewards range from official do-gooder status to ad-free episodes, autographed books, and opportunities to connect with us directly for your business, school, church, or even just a book club chat. But just knowing that you are part of a movement that has the power to make your community safer, well, that's got to taste better than a skinny cappuccino any day. So please head to patreon.com forward slash stop the killing now and polish off your do-gooder halo and make sure to include your name so we can give you a shout out. This podcast is a community podcast production. That's con with an N. If you want more content, then head over to community podcast at Instagram, where you'll find trailers on more binge-worthy true crime, like the award-winning podcast Conning the Con. And check out our show notes for all the links mentioned. Finally, if you want one takeaway action that you can do right now that can help make our community safer, Please share, rate and review this podcast wherever you listen. Everybody needs to know that they hold the keys to see something and say something. Together, we can stop the killing. It's one of those things you hope never happens, but you better train for it. Because it will happen. And it will happen in places you wouldn't expect. Be ready for it. Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks' lies had been so convincing, she'd invested $300,000 with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series, and that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. 
that's what this was, a real life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.